the 27th Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not Turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. We're going to consider in particular tonight from Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. And in light of that, I hope as we'll see, I'll ask you a question at the outset. Are you a heavenly-minded person? Could you describe yourself honestly as a heavenly-minded person? Should you be a heavenly-minded person? Maybe we could ask ourselves that. I hope we are. I hope you are. I hope I am. I hope that will increase in our lives, being heavenly minded. Because as a Christian, so much present comfort and strength and help is forfeited when we are not heavenly minded enough. You probably have heard the saying, it's usually attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. Some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Johnny Cash even picked up on it in one of his songs. You're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. But C.S. Lewis is helpful when he said, in mere Christianity, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. 
It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read the his, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Or listen to another voice from the past, J.C. Ryle, who said, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. I use that word in the broadest and most popular sense. I mean by heaven the future dwelling place of all true Christians when the dead are raised and the world has passed away. Cold and unfeeling must that heart be, which never gives a thought to that dwelling place. Dull and earthly must that mind be, which never considers heaven. Or the Puritan pastor and preacher Matthew Henry, there is nothing like the believing hope of eternal life, the foresights of that glory, and the foretastes of those pleasures to keep us from fainting under all the calamities of this present time. Are you a heavenly-minded person? Well, it's exactly that present help coming from the future hope of heaven that is so beautifully revealed in God's word for us here in Psalm 27. The NIV translates the last two verses, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Are you a heavenly-minded person? Boys and girls, I wonder if your parents maybe at some point have ever said, we're going to take a, a big trip to a very special place. I, I know some of you even recently have gone on special trips to special places, and I know how much that has gotten your interest when it's been announced to you, and you start asking questions, don't you? Where are we going? Oh, it's going to be great. What's it going to be like? What are we going to do? Who will be there? You just have all these question after question. How much more to think of the glories of heaven and to think we could live as Christians and not be so interested in our great destination, not to be heavenly-minded, Well, we see three things here in verses 13 and 14 that I hope will encourage us to be heavenly minded and to see and to experience the blessings of being heavenly minded. We see in Psalm 27 uh, three main things. We see a troubled heart, but then in these last verses especially, we see a believing heart and then a strengthened heart. A troubled heart, a believing heart, and a strengthened heart. The the whole general outline of Psalm 27, the structure of the psalm is helpful for us to see. The psalm begins with who God is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. The psalm begins with worship. It begins with the desire to know God better. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This great desire to know God and to know him better, as Paul prays in the letter to the Ephesians. And after this contemplation of God, then the psalm turns to prayer. Verse 7, hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. And there's such a clear progression in this psalm from praise and worship to prayer and petition that some critics of the Bible think that this psalm was written by two different writers, putting two separate psalms together, or one writer writing on different occasions and then the psalm being put together. But to suggest that must be the case, I think, is to be ignorant of the Christian life and Christian experience. The better we know God, the more we learn about God in his glorious works, the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the more we will be compelled to pray. The more will be eager to pray, the more we will be comforted in prayer. Praise and prayer must and should go together. One writer said, the God who is light and salvation and strength, the God who hides his people in his pavilion and lifts the soul onto the rock is the very one who's Face a man forsaken of father and mother, pursued by adversaries and slandered by enemies, will most easily appeal to. The better we know God, the richer our prayers will be. We should never forget God in times of blessing and bounty, of course, but it is in those times of trouble, which God really compels us to seek him. In Psalm 27, we see that troubled heart. Verse 5 envisions a day of trouble. Verse 2, flesh and blood enemies who are intent on doing harm. Verse 3, a great conflict of various kinds, no doubt feeling like you're besieged by an army. Literally or figuratively. Verse 10 speaks of broken or strained human relationships. Even being deserted or abandoned. Though my father and mother forsake me. Verse 12 is one of the many places in the Bible and the Psalms especially that refers to false witnesses. So troubling when people are reporting something about you which just isn't true. And where their version of the truth, if it's accepted, will have such serious consequences for you. If it's believed, they're breathing out violence. That's their intent to harm you. The psalm is full of trouble. Your trouble today or your trouble of yesterday or perhaps your trouble of tomorrow may not be exactly like these things. It may be of another kind, 
But the reality of trouble in this world is undeniable. This is a world filled with trouble. And the greatest of all trouble is the last great enemy, death. It's not a surprise that people have a troubled heart. Martha, Martha, and you can put your name there. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about many things. That second word in the original Greek gives us our word turbulent. Your heart is turbulent. It's troubled. Even disciples of Jesus can have troubled hearts. You remember the beginning of John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, how can you be helped if you have a heart filled with trouble or troubles? We see here in Psalm 27, verse 13, a believing heart. The NIV has it, I remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The King James says, unless I had believed. The answer is faith. Faith in the God of Scripture. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus went on in John 14, not just to say, don't let your hearts be troubled, but immediately to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's faith. This verse 13 of Psalm 27 is very interesting in the original Hebrew. All it says is, unless I had believed. English translations, most English translations, fill in something to bring out the sense. And so you'll see in the King James Version, if you're using it, that words are in italics. They've been added. So the King James of Psalm 27, 13 says, I had fainted unless I had believed. The new King James says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed. The New American Standard Bible says, I would have despaired unless I had believed. But those words, I had fainted, I would have lost heart, I would have despaired, are all added by translators. One French version that I consulted, translated into English, simply says, Oh, if I was not certain. They translate, I had fainted, or would have lost heart, or would have despaired, that sense, with just that word, oh. Oh, if I was not certain. You see, and that gets at the point because the Hebrew leaves the consequence unstated. And in doing it, says something more powerful, more comprehensive. It better communicates the desperation of unbelief. That without faith, you can't even put it into words. So one writer said, 
unless I had believed, and that's, remember, all the Hebrew says, unless I had believed. What? What shall have become of me? Can't even put it into words without faith, without the gift of faith. But God gives the gift of faith to his children. Even as we pray, we believe, help our unbelief that still is in our hearts. Unless I had believed. A believing heart. And here there is a specific belief, isn't there? New King James. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Unless I had believed that I would see. To see here is is to acknowledge, yes, to behold, but also to experience, to, to be made a beneficiary of God's goodness, that he is good and that he does good. And then he's specific. Where? Where is he confident of seeing the goodness of the Lord? It says, in the land of the living. Now, where is that? Where's the land of the living? What do you think of when you think of the land of the living? That exact language in Psalm 27, verse 13, is only ever used in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, the exact language, and it's used there seven times, and each of those seven references refer to this world, to this life. That this world is the land of the living. There is similar language in Hebrew that's used in several other places. Psalm 52, verse 5, Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. So again, a reference to this life. Isaiah 53, 8, even that prophecy of Christ, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. And so very often in scripture, this language, the land of the living, is this life. So, here is the psalmist. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So is this then the belief, the hope, that troubles will end and God's goodness then will be experienced in this life? Because that's the land of the living. Some say, yes, that's what it means strictly, and that's the way it should be interpreted. And they say, this is what we see specifically in the life of David. This is a psalm of David. And David, by direct promise, after much trouble in his life, was promised that he would have a successor on the throne. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. And so David, in the land of the living, did see the goodness of the Lord in that sense. 
So this world, when you consider it in different ways, can be considered as the land of the living. John Calvin, in commenting on Psalm 27, said of the land of the living, some understand by the land of the living the heavenly inheritance. But this interpretation is forced. And I think I agree. In terms of common usage, the land of the living in the Bible is most often this life and this world. But when I consider the rest of Scripture, and when I consider the experience of the people of God in this life, I do find that my interpretation is forced. I am forced, ultimately, to look to the new heavens and the new earth as the truly and most glorious realization of the land of the living. Andrew Marshall was a 19th century black preacher. And toward the end of his life, when he was sick and old, he wrote to some of his friends and said, Tell them that I am yet in the land of the dying, but I am bound for the land of the living. There is no death there, while all things are dying here. Isn't that true that, in a sense, this is the land of the living? We have life in this world, physical life. But there's another great sense that this is the world of the dying. Because it's the world of the dead, we're born into this world dead in our sins and our trespasses. And the wages of sin is death. In many ways, this life, this world is the land of the dying. You remember Genesis chapter 5. What's the repeated refrain? And he died. And he died. And then he died. More than a genealogy, it's a great extended obituary. This is the land of the dying. It's appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 9.27. Death is several times in the Bible called the way of all the earth. 1 Kings 2.2 is one example. And Ecclesiastes 7 says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. This is, this world, the land of the dying. But into this land of the dying, God sent a Savior. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4.25. And then Hebrews 2, the author says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the glorious good news that has broken in in Jesus Christ into this land, this world of the dying. Jesus says at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
And whoever lives believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's to all believers that Jesus says, John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. United to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's true, of course, of our spiritual lives that are raised, we're raised with Christ when we're converted, when we're born again. Ephesians 2.5. It's true of the intermediate state. When a believer dies, you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 22, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In heaven, the new heavens and the new earth is the land of the living. For the Christian, the Latin saying is true. Mors janua vitae, death is the door to life. Our final eternal state, united to Christ, is the land of the living. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Resurrected, glorious bodies made like Christ, united to souls made perfect in holiness and the full enjoying of God forever. That's the land of the living. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Unless I had believed. Look to the land of the living, as Abraham did. By faith. Faith in the word of God, which calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, the living word. If we look at verse 13, what do we see? Believing comes before seeing. It's not seeing before believing. It's believing. Unless I had believed that I would see. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, These are things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Incomprehensible, but revealed in God's word to us. And so I think ultimately what we see here in verse 13 is in times of trouble, especially a believing heart that by faith is heavenly minded. 
I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. A believing heart is changed from a troubled heart by being heavenly-minded to becoming a strengthened heart. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. We fix our eyes on Jesus, it says in Hebrews. And Jesus lived this way, didn't he? Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus knew this. He knew present help from future hope. For the joy set before him, he was strengthened to endure the cross. Spurgeon said, hope is heaven's balm for present sorrow. This is how we are counseled to think and to live in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is your heart troubled? Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Calvin said, let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Not death as death per se, but death as what it will be for the believer. Our great departure, our ushering in to the eternal state. Heavenly mindedness will bring you strength in present trouble. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The verbs are in the singular here. It's as if David is talking to himself. He's counseling himself. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. All right, David, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if that's your hope, David? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. That's the New International. Literally, it's be strong and be strengthened. There are two Hebrew words that both mean strength. Be strong. How? God will strengthen you. 
Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Be strong. Be strengthened. Be strong, be strengthened. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Ephesians 6.10, as you contemplate the glories of the land of the living. Strong to do what? Wait. That's the bookends of verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. To trust, to wait in the Lord is to trust in the Lord as he works out his perfect purposes. To wait is a humble, thankful, contented quietness of spirit that beloved children of God who are bound for glory know. A humble, thankful, contented quietness of spirit, even in times of trouble. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. Heavenly-mindedness for present strength and comfort. And waiting is not merely passive, as one writer said. Wait at his door with prayer. Wait at his foot with humility. Wait at his table with service. And wait at his window with expectancy. Are you a heavenly-minded person? John Piper, I think, said it very well. Yes, I know, he said, it is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is... I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of other worldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. He will set me high upon a rock, it says in verse 5, and that rock is the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Come and let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living.